Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone here. Good to hear the Word of God preached and to be reminded of the responsibilities of an elder. Um, I don't know, for you young men, did that seem a little intimidating? Uh, It's a pretty high calling. But it is good to consider all of those because that is God's will and it's the responsibilities of an elder. Now, we also believe the scriptures teach in a plurality of ministers in a, in a congregation. And so, through that, God can also um, supply everything that a congregation needs. It's a bit difficult for one man to excel in all three of those areas. And so there's, there's a bit of balance. Um, in fact, there in that passage in Ephesians 4, it mentions pastors and teachers, uh, almost as if it's separate gifts, and yet... Um, they can all be blended as well. In, and as Brother Leonard mentioned in our conversation back here, that we should aspire to all of it, or as much of it as we can. So, on the one hand, don't let it intimidate you. But on the other hand, also understand what you're getting into for the ones to whom the Lord calls to this ministry. These are the responsibilities of one who serves. Well, I am planning to teach on the qualifications of an elder. And that also could be a bit intimidating. But the Word of God has a lot to say about the qualifications of an elder. So let's read two passages, which are parallel passages, but... Uh, they give a clear outline of what should be considered when you select an elder or a pastor, teacher, bishop. The first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll also be reading in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We have 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, nor covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. 
For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then let's turn to the second passage, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And we'll stop now. That portion there. Now these two lists have quite a number of different things that are mentioned. I have somewhat compiled the two and combined a few of the statements. And I think I came up with about 15. I didn't number them particularly. But... I'd like to speak about these uh, and just go down through giving some definition to the various uh, qualifications as they're given here. Now, a few months back in our regional ministers meeting, we had some discussion about ordination and we talked about uh, qualifications and various things. And one of the brothers just mentioned, he said, you know, when you ordain someone, it just needs to be somebody that's nice. You know, they, they just need to be nice. It, it doesn't work if, if they're not nice. Well, that, uh, that really shortens things up to a nice little package, doesn't it? Well, the Word of God gives a lot of definition to that, what it means to be nice. But there is an element of truth in that, you know, that it, it's kind of a package deal. It's not just that one man might excel in this and, and he can skip over a few of the others or whatever. It, it needs to be a, um, a package deal. And there are some perhaps more important than others, but you can't just have big gaps and, and it's going to be working out all right. It just won't work. Now many of these things also are just basic Christian virtues that everyone should aspire to. 
whether you're called to the ministry or not. They just basic principles of a godly life. And so, in that sense, it's not extreme or unattainable. It's many of the things listed here are virtues that God gives to those who are his children and those who are intent on serving him. Many of them pertain to marriage. Uh, some of these qualifications could be at work for a husband leading in his home with his wife and also with his children. It's mentioned specifically there about children. So if they uh, aren't doing well with their children, then it's not going to work in the church. That's plainly what it tells us. So that is important when considering qualifications. So I have these uh, listed here, and I'll just go down through. They may be ordered a bit differently in, in that some of them are mentioned in one passage but not in the other, and some of them I have combined because they, they're repetitious. And So I'll just go down through. Maybe noting some overlap as we go. We'll start with the first requirement. Um, it says not in novice. Well, I say first, but I guess it's uh, first in t- in the life of a of a believer. Is that a new believer begins out as a novice? A novice, well, we don't use that so much. I mean, we use it in English as one who is unlearned, and that is, that is the basic meaning. But in the early church, as I've studied a bit, they seem to have a specific designation of a novice, and would use that term frequently as someone who newly came to the faith and was being instructed or catechized in the, the basic things of the faith would have been especially important for someone who was unlearned in the ways of God. Maybe had no, no teaching in his youth and no background, no, no knowledge of God. Such an one needed a lot of instruction, and they were termed a novice. So it says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's not, uh, the entrance into the kingdom is not for those who would aspire immediately to a position of authority or an office, saying, well, say, I, I want to become a Christian because I'd like to be a leader in a church. No, that's, that's not how it works. You come humbly before the cross and acknowledge that you need a Savior. So not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride. So coming into the church, it's one who um, receives instruction and learning, and that's important for one who would eventually take that office because he needs to be learned in the ways of the Scripture. He needs to exercise himself and understand how things work. 
We wouldn't do that in the natural, in a business. For example, if you had a construction crew and you hired on a new novice, one who had not been learned in the trade, and after a week on the job, you don't appoint him as a foreman for the crew. Why? Because he doesn't yet know what he doesn't know. He may assume that he thinks or think he knows a lot. Well, he, he just doesn't know as much as he thinks he knows. And that could be a, a temptation to pride. And that's why it tells us that it should not be a novice. It should be one who has some experience and some learning, and he's, he knows what it means to be a Christian. If he is to build up the church of God, he must have experienced it himself. A husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. And if he's to instruct others, to build them up in the faith, and to teach them, it needs to be things that he has experienced himself. The next thing we note is he is to be blameless. In the passage in Titus, it's used twice, and it's also mentioned in Timothy, blameless. Now, we may shy away from that word a bit because that seems pretty, pretty steep, doesn't it? Blameless, no fault, perfect, and yet we... For good reason, we avoid at least professing our own perfection. We acknowledge that we have need to grow, and we have, uh, we are not yet, we have not yet arrived. Well, again, that shouldn't be intimidating because it is God's will for us to be perfected, and He talks about that and I believe this is talking about at the end of our life, that Christ will present us faultless before the throne of God. So God is perfecting us from the time we've entered into the kingdom. And he wants to continue to perfect us. But blameless basically means that he is without fault, not having anything to be accused of. So he needs to be of upright character. And it tells us further that he must have a good report of them that are without. That's found in, uh, in 1 Timothy there in that passage. So when it's talking about blameless, it's, it's no major flaw that would disqualify a man from being in the office of a of a bishop or a minister, an elder. A good report of them that are without. He has a testimony. And those that are without are not a part of the church. It's in the community. It's where you live. There should not be any major accusations against you because that is going to hinder you from being effective. You know, it works. If a man is truly at fault with those in his community. And they see that man put in the office of a, of a leader. They look at that and, ooh, 
I'm sure not going there. So a man needs to have a good testimony in the community and those uh, that he knows or those who know him. Maybe I'll just say on this point, Jesus was accused of many things, but he was blameless. And there's a difference there. He, even though there was there were many accusations made, they were without foundation. He was blameless. He wasn't guilty of the things that they accused him of. Okay, next point. Children in order. What does it say here in Titus? Having faithful children. Faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. And in... uh, In Timothy it says, uh, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And then it adds this uh, in parentheses. It says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So God has given responsibility to a father, Uh, to rule in his own house, to guide his children, to see after their welfare, and to teach and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And if that's not happening, why should we think that it would go well in the church? It it won't. Um, Leonard just mentioned, you know, Dad's sitting there reading, you know, and he... He's not the overseer. He's not seeing what's happening. He's the overlooker. It just, you know, because we're caught up in whatever, and I've been there. But it's, if that becomes the norm, you're going to have problems in your, in your household. Things are not going to go well. Having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. If the children are jumping on the couches and bouncing off the walls and there's noise and disorder and all of that going on and you do nothing, you just stand by, no, that's not, not going to work. You need to be willing to step up when things are not going well and say, wait a minute, no, this, this is not how it should be. These things should not be happening in the church of God. You know, a minister, an elder needs to be able to do that at times. And so, it's one who should be practiced in that in his home. To say, no, this is, this is how you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do, and so on. Children in order. Next one. It says, the husband of one wife. Now this has been debated a good bit in the, in the history of the church. The husband of one wife. Because some read that to say that it should not be an unmarried man. He's not qualified. 
Well, I'm not sure that that's exactly what it's saying. That is very clear from the statement, husband of one wife. There's also some who have thought, and this was perhaps some in the early church, uh, that if a man had a wife, he was, he was in the um, office of an elder or deacon or, or a minister, bishop, and his wife died, he was not allowed to be remarried. So if a man, even if he rightfully remarried, and it was okay and according to Scripture, he was not qualified to be a teacher. Now, this husband of one wife, I'm not sure. I think there is certainly a benefit to a man being married. But I have heard of unmarried men being teachers, and we would have, for example, the Apostle Paul himself as one who did not have a wife. Now, some think maybe at one point he was married, perhaps she died. We don't know. There's no record of that. And he clearly speaks of himself as being unmarried at uh, the point where he's teaching there. So based on that, it doesn't seem like it would totally disqualify a man if he was unmarried, never been married, that he could never be a teacher or a elder. But I would like to point out that this husband of one wife should speak to the fact that a man has his marriage in order. He's right in the sight of God in this matter of marriage. He is not one who is, uh, and later there's talks about one who is covetous. And in the New Testament, the word covetous and the immorality of a man is often linked. A man who desires multiple wives or one who is not his own is called a covetous man. And that should not be for a leader or a bishop or elder. He should have his marriage in order. And you know in the New Testament it clearly speaks of marriage as being representative of Christ and the church. And so if a man does not have his marriage in order... And how can he represent that which is right and good in the church? His marriage should be a reflection of what it is. We're going to the next one is apt to teach. Now the word apt has actually a quite a range of meaning, and it, here are a few synonyms and definitions of the word apt. It means fit, suitable, inclined to, ready, quick, and qualified. So when we read the phrase apt to teach, we may think of someone who is eloquent in words. Well, that's maybe a portion of what it means to be apt, but it's not the only definition of apt. In fact, if you look at some examples in Scripture, and I think of the Apostle Paul, 
of whom he himself wrote that people say that he is, his speech is contemptible, which might imply that he was not an eloquent speaker. And contrast that with what it was said of Apollos, that he was an eloquent man. But I don't believe this apt to teach means that a man must be eloquent to qualify. It does mean, though, that he should be qualified to teach. That could be one meaning of apt. And that reflects back on what we said about not being a novice, one who has, he needs to be one who has already learned uh, what it means to be a Christian. He needs to be one who has advanced enough. And there was a warning that those who should have been able to be teachers, it says they still had need of someone to teach them. They were just babes. They had not advanced at all and couldn't teach and instruct. And so apt to teach should be someone who is advanced enough and understands so that he is able to instruct others. Likewise. Now a certain aptitude, we use that word sometimes, apt to teach means fit and suitable, inclined to. If you have children in your home, you need to teach them. You should be able to instruct them and teach them. And that is an exercise in, in this quality of being apt to teach. So it's not necessarily the best orator that is qualified for the ministry. It, uh, it needs to be more than just that. More than eloquence in word, it needs to be fit, suitable, inclined to. In fact, if we look at Apollos, and I believe it's the first mention where he talks about him being mighty in word and eloquent, but he needed to be taken aside and instructed more perfectly in the ways of godliness because he hadn't yet learned all of what he needed to know. So there was an eloquent man who humbled himself to receive some instruction and then became mighty and useful in the kingdom. Okay, going on to the next one, good behavior. Maybe this reflects on our definition of nice. Good behavior. He must be a man of good behavior. Now if a man can teach his children to be of good behavior, and we, we use that a lot I think, or at least I believe I did as I was instructing my children, now, now you, know, you know, straighten up here, now that's, that's not appropriate, you know, this, we need some, a little better cooperation here. And this good behavior, it literally means um, decorous. Now that word is not so commonly used. What does it mean to be decorous? Well, let me read the definition. It means decent, 
suitable to a character or to the time, place, and occasion. Becoming, proper, befitting, as a decorous speech, decorous behavior, a decorous dress for a judge. And an interesting note here with this word is that it's a, the same Greek word is used in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. If you want to turn back there. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, verse Nine, it says, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. That word modest in this verse here, verse 2, is the same word that is used for good behavior for one who is to be a bishop or an elder. Good behavior. That which is decent, suitable to a character. And what it simply means is that there are appropriate ways to behave oneself. And there are inappropriate ways. Just like the dress for a Christian woman, when it says modest, it's that which is appropriate. And that which is suitable and right, and good, decorous, it's decent, it's, it's that which is appropriate. And it used here for the definition of decorous, a decorous dress for a judge. And if you know much about a courtroom, a judge usually puts on his robe. It's appropriate, it's, it's honorary, it's it's dignified. If he comes in dressed as if he's going to go out to the beach, not very, I mean, there's, there's just something lacking. Well, there's an appropriateness in a way a man conducts himself. He shouldn't be foolish and frivolous. He should be, and then he uses some of these other words later about being sober and and just, and holy, and temperate. Good behavior. You know, for those of you who know the Pennsylvania Dutch, there's a common phrase for telling children how to behave. And it literally would be interpreted, uh, behave yourself in an orderly or decent manner. And it's usually used in a bit of a... a um, firmness of instruction or, or maybe even mild reproof to tell them how to behave. Behave yourself in an orderly and reasonable manner. Next one is not self-willed. Not self-willed. That's exactly what it means. You know, there are people who go their own way. And you really can't tell them anything because they've decided 
how it's going to be, and they're going to do it their way. They, they have an answer for almost everything, and it's not necessarily born out of wisdom. It's just that's, that's how it needs to be because I've decided that. And that is not going to work in the church of God. Not self-willed, it's a man who is willing, on the contrary, he's willing to be under authority. And he should have demonstrated that throughout his life. There should be enough track record there that this man is willing to be instructed and to be under authority, else he will most likely abuse his office and position, not self-willed. Going on to the next one, patient. Patient. And in our high-paced and high-pressured world, that's, that's something that needs to be practiced with purpose. Patience. Now it gives the contrary that a man should not be, and it says this, he should not He's not soon angry. And I've combined several here. No striker. No striker. And not a brawler. Patient. Well, you know what soon angry is. A man who's quick to flare up and... and just get upset and, and distressed and angry about circumstances or people or whatever it be, that's not going to work. Because in a church, it's just a given that there are people who are going to irritate you. If you think that's a little too strong, it happens in families, you know, between siblings. It happens in a household. It's just the way things are. People are going to, um, they're going to do things that you don't like. And as an elder, if you are soon angry with how people are acting, that's not, it's not good. So, a man's life should demonstrate that he is not soon angry. He doesn't get all bent out of shape about the first little trouble that arises. No striker. That's quarrelsome. That's what that word means, quarrelsome. And, and you know, there's men who just like nothing better than a good argument and to make their point. And they somehow feel after a length of time of a good, strong argument, they somehow feel like, you know, I've had a good time. Yeah. And you know, that happens once or twice and you sort of just wish, you know, to have little to do with those kind of people. No striker, not a brawler, not one who wants to be contentious and wrangle about things and, and not, uh, but 
On the contrary, he should be patient. He should be reasonable. He should be able to keep his passions in check and not, not get distraught about every little thing that comes his way. Next, I have sober. And some of these are very related, but sober, and on the contrary, it mentions that he should not be given to wine. Now, the word sober is, is, uh, has more extent than just not being drunken or not given to wine. But it's interesting that we use that term as a contrast to someone who is given to wine and becomes drunken. We use the word sober to indicate someone who is not drunken. Well, the word sober in the scripture means to be of sound mind, that is, self-controlled, moderate as to opinion or passions. So you don't get in a big fluster, you, you moderate your passions, your feelings, and your opinions even, it's, and you're discreet, sober, temperate. That's one who is sober. Well, if you contrast to that one who is given to wine, he loses his self-control. When he's drunken, he can no longer think cognitively. He's impaired. And that's why they arrest those who attempt to drive while they're drunken. They're, they're very high risk for collisions and accidents of all sorts and because they can no longer think properly they, they, they've lost control of their cognitive function and that shouldn't be for a man of God he should not be given to wine but rather he should be sober self-controlled his mind is kept in control next one is vigilant Brother Leonard mentioned that one. Vigilant also uh, literally means circumspect. That word is used elsewhere in the scripture, and the word circumspect means literally looking on all sides, looking around. Hence, cautious, prudent. Watchful on all sides, examining carefully all the circumstances that may affect a determination or a measure to be adopted. That's what it means to be vigilant. He's not asleep. He's thinking. He's reasoning things through. He's alert to what is about him. He's watching on all sides. He considers a matter with some care, circumspect. He's vigilant. He's, he's alert. The next one I have is temperate. And that means to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. And these 
last ones I listed here, sober, vigilant, temperate, they're, they're all related. It means to have one's, um, one's mind clear, thinking rationally, not having it impaired with wine, but also able to think things through and to consider what is about him, to look carefully on all sides. He's not quick to uh, jump to conclusions, but he thinks things through. Vigilant, temperate. Next one is given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. And that word given there means that you're ready to do it. You're forward to do it. You're, it's, it's the way you are. People see you as a hospitable person. And it's not that I, you know, count specifically how many people I've had over to my house. It's you know when someone is hospitable. They will have folks over. They're willing to engage. They're friendly. They're inviting. Um, they're not reclusive or hiding in a corner. They are given to hospitality. You know, they're, they're nice. You know, you enjoy being around them. They welcome you in. They're, they're, they're nice to you. They're hospitable. Going on to the next one, not greedy of filthy lucre. And I lump that with the one that says not covetous. Not covetous, not greedy of filthy lucre. Now this is one that's maybe a bit, um, a bit difficult to define, partly because I can scarcely think of anyone who would uh, admit to being greedy. We somehow we just we just avoid that. Now, I can look at other people and I can think they appear to be greedy, but it's doubtful that they will acknowledge such. And so, we should recognize that we need to carefully evaluate our own life, you know, lest I be found greedy. And along with that is, uh, it calls it filthy lucre. And so then we tend to think, well, that must be ill-gotten gain, and it is. I mean, that is part of the definition of filthy lucre. Um, and maybe just money in general is bad, but it's not really that way. We are in the world, and in the world we need to live, and we need to buy and sell, and we need to provide for our families, and we need to earn an income, uh, all those things are part of, 
of our life, but it says specifically not greedy of filthy lucre, not covetous. Not a man who's grasping after material gain. And there's clear instructions in the Word of God that we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things can be added unto us. And I think it could be summarized in this way, and, and this may not be just the strictest definition of not greedy of filthy lucre, but it needs to be a man who is willing to sacrifice. Because there is a conflict between being too occupied with material gain and laboring in the kingdom of God. You can't serve both. And even though we do have to earn a living and we have to we have to handle money, one who is called to the office of a elder or a deacon has to be willing to sacrifice, not focus just on material gain. And there's, there has to be a readiness to engage in the kingdom of God rather than being just occupied with, with material gain. Whether it's growing my business or, or just constantly thinking about material things. It needs to be a man who is willing to, to engage himself in the work of the kingdom and even willing to sacrifice. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that uh, we should take, uh, talking about elders there, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, not forced into this, but willingly should be of a ready mind that you do this. And then it says that uh, not, for, not for filthy lucre's sake. In other words, don't expect that you're going to get wealthy by taking on the responsibility of a bishop or an elder. It's, that's not what the, that position is for. It's not for material gain. But it's rather one who is willing to sacrifice. There is a, uh, there are scriptures that talk about the ministry being supported. The, uh, that's a responsibility of the congregation to support the ministry. But again, for the one who is taking on this responsibility, it's not one for material gain, not one who is seeking after um, and, and focused on material gain or covetous. Okay, going on to the next one is just. One who is just. And that speaks of both character and conduct. And it, uh, it simply means one who is righteous. 
He orders his life rightly. And it particularly would mean one who does right, and perhaps even in the area of judgment and of interaction with others, is one who does what is right, one who acts alike to all, impartial. And the scripture talks about, in James, about a man who is partial. If he looks at one and says, and he favors him because he looks good or is dressed better or is more wealthy, and the poor one is treated poorly, that is called sin. If we show favoritism in that manner. And so... One who is called to this office should be just. One who acts alike to all is impartial. He doesn't treat others with partiality. And next is holy. One who is holy. And that word basically means consecrated to a sacred use. Consecrated to a sacred use. And I could also link that with what I said a few, uh, an earlier point, not greedy of filthy lucre. A man greedy of filthy lucre would be concerned primarily about gaining wealth and, and focused on material gain, whereas someone who is holy, consecrated to sacred use, means that he's willing to focus on what he has been set apart to do, which is to tend the flock of God, to take the oversight thereof, and to feed them, and to, and to superintend, to look for the gain and welfare of, of the flock of God. So he's holy, he's consecrated to his sacred use. And then the last one I have is that of holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast the faithful word. And why is that needed? It says that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And Brother Leonard uh, touched on that to some extent there. That a man who is called to this office needs to be holding fast the faithful word. And while it's, it, it may seem daunting, to be able to stand as a watchman on the wall, to be alert and be able to see all the dangers that are out there. If you are, I don't know if you still have your Bibles open there in, in Titus, but the rest of that chapter talks extensively about this, this subject. And so the admonition here and the qualification is holding fast the faithful word. 
And that speaks of a man who is, who is studied to some extent. You may know he not necessarily knows everything about everything yet. He grows into some of that. But he has to be willing to stand on the foundational issues and he should be diligent to exercise himself to know what the issues are and to be able to explain And Leonard gave a list of them, but I'll just mention a few. For example, uh, the once saved, always saved. Is that, is that what the scripture teaches? Or can a person fall away and lose their salvation, which they once had attained to, and then fall away? Well, there's those out there who say that it's not possible to fall away. That's a pretty basic one. Can you explain? Are you willing to stand on the Word of God and be able to explain to someone what the Word of God says about these things? Divorce and remarriage. That has been explained away by many as being still acceptable. Are you able to open the scriptures and explain and expound on why a man should not put away his wife and, and that those who do so should not be accepted in the church of God? Well, let's see what he says here <clears throat> in Titus. It says there are many unruly and vain talkers and that Reminds me of the children who are unruly and the man of God is to be keeping his children in order so that they are not unruly. They're not bouncing all over the place. They are able to be instructed. They are, they are um, behaving themselves properly. Well, there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Apparently those who thought they were going to get wealthy by being in a teaching position. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Now I know I'm getting a little bit into the responsibilities of an elder. But this is why it's so important to be um, holding fast the faithful word. Because these situations are going to arise. And a man must be willing to hold fast that faithful word. He shouldn't be one who is tossed to and fro, believing one thing and then another. He should be established in the faith and continually building on the truth. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. And if you study that, what that actually means is the word parenterally. 
It's not a word we commonly use. But it simply means no argument. So if an elder gets up and says, no, this is how it is, end of discussion. That's what that word means. Rebuking them sharply. It's like telling them, this is how it is, end of discussion. Wow. Now, I'm not expecting that a newly ordained elder is necessarily going to exercise that. You should probably be a little cautious. I try to be cautious. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those weighty things that you don't just use indiscriminately. But it does call and, and put to mind that there needs to be some fortitude. A man who is willing to stand on the tree. And there will come times when in order to not give heed to Jewish fables or commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. And again, it's because these kind of things do happen. They're a reality, and therefore a man needs to be holding fast the faithful word. Needs to be willing to stand on that. And I think I will conclude with that. And I'll let Elvin give the closing here.